Welcome to the 272nd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with William Forshan, author of the New York Times bestselling series, One Second After. Stay tuned for the interview. And just one programming note, this interview was originally recorded in late 2019. Stay tuned for the interview with William Forshan. This episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro.fm. Libro.fm is the first and only company which lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Support your favorite local bookstore and you can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a different story, one that supports your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated list from the people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. There's a special offer now. For reading and writing podcast listeners, get three audiobooks for the price of one, $14.99, with your first month of membership. Just use the code RWPODCAST. Again, that's Libro.fm, purchasing audiobooks from your local bookstore, and use the code RWPODCAST. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author, William Forston, author of the new thriller novel, 48 Hours. Forston is the author of the One Second After series and is a recognized expert on electromagnetic pulse and military history. In addition, he wrote a popular fantasy series, The Lost Regiment Novels in the 1980s and 90s. William, welcome to the podcast. God, people still remember that series, <laughs> and it's a pleasure to be with you today. I, I do. I was actually a huge, huge fan of the series. I'll ask you some questions later in the interview. Okay, about the 35th Maine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, 48 Hours, yet, how would you describe it? Wow. Uh, well, the title kind of says it. How would humanity? all of us planet-wide react that if a particular solar storm was about to let go, which in 48 hours had the potential of killing almost all life on the surface of the earth, what would we do with those last two days? How would people react, good or bad? And the novel follows four or five characters who are having to make some tough decisions. Uh, One of them is a security I had security at a vast underground facility at Springfield, Missouri, which is real. It actually exists. There's two and a half million square feet underground that government officials want to move into while the good citizens of Springfield are saying, no, we're going to put our children in there. And I'm trying to get people to think a little bit about what's important. Um, Just moralize for 15 seconds. I'm a very patriotic American. I am completely fed up with the gridlock, the screaming, the got you, you know, you're lying, no, you're lying. 
if we only had 48 hours left, wouldn't most of that seem rather insignificant? So that's briefly what the book is about. Great. 48 hours left to go. What would you do? And so I think that kind of leads into uh, the next question, probably. Um, I'm sure you probably thought about it when you were writing the novel. How do you think you would react? What would you do in those 48 hours? Yeah. Uh, my daughter's up in Urbana. I would definitely want to be with my daughter, uh, my family. And people might do some strange things. I, I fly antique airplanes. Um, I have a World War II recon bird. I think I'd take it up one last time to see how high I could climb to, as the poem says, reach out and touch the face of God. I think the vast majority of us, we would just want to be with those whom we love. And so with the solar storm, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the science behind that? And what's sure. the what's the possibility of, of something like that happening next week or next year? Okay. Uh, the book actually started off uh, after writing three books on the issue of EMP. <clears throat> and my publisher initially was talking with me about a book on CME, which stands for Coronal Mass Ejection. And you're going to get a bunch of acronyms here in about a minute. <laughs> you know, I, I spent about a year trying to put a book together, and it just kept circling back on itself. It's like, okay, yeah. What CME will do is identical to an EMP. We get hit by a major solar storm. It will blow out the power grid, maybe of the entire world. Now, my first series, the EMP books, was about what happened afterwards, how one community tried to survive. So initially, I'm writing a book. It's two days before, and I kept coming up with the same conclusion. Some people will do good. Some people will run in circles, scream, and shout. And then... While researching this, one day I came across a reference to CPE, coronal proton eruption. Rather rare event, but when it happens, if it lets go and in a particular circumstance hits Earth, uh, it turns into what's called an ELE, extension level event. Most life on the planet would be wiped out. What's the probability? Well, some people argue that we might have been hit by a partial CPE about 14,000 years ago because of a mass extinction that happened then in North America. You know, we all know about the cycle of mass extinctions, and the general thesis now is we get clobbered by an asteroid every 30 or 40 million years. Statistically, CPE, higher probability. So what are the odds? They're slim. But... If it happens, it's a game ender. I have one character point out. He said, you know, if you take all of eternity, all the sides of the universe and time, somewhere somebody's getting it today, and it just so happens today it's us. And so is there evidence from history of that links sudden um, extinction-level events with a CPE? Yeah, uh, what first caught my eye was an article that, oh gosh, it's a long technical term. I use it in the book. I can't pull it up right at the moment. Sure. That around 14,000 years ago, it was suddenly a very significant die-off of uh, species in North America. The generally accepted thesis is, is that it was humans coming into the area, overhunting them, 
And it was proposed that, well, if it was a CPA, you could almost have the same thing happen. Also, China, interesting, Chinese uh, historical records, when it comes to astronomy, are pretty darn good. And in the year 775 AD, uh, there was a description of a sudden, intense brightening of the sun that lasted for several hours, which could very well have been a CPD erupting because the intensity of light that will be generated to go up almost a full magnitude for several minutes. It travels at close to speed of uh, light, and if erupted in about 10 minutes, 11 minutes, it would hit the planet. What protects us is the magnetosphere, God's blanket around the planet. Well, what would happen if the CME, I know I'm throwing a lot of acronyms around, CME peels back the magnetosphere, and then within 48 hours, CPE erupts. We're at a game ender. That's the easy explanation. <laughs> okay. I'm going to the scientific mathematical <laughs> one, I'll put you to sleep in five minutes. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, well, I know that um, I know that you you mentioned earlier um, about your earlier novels where the power grid goes out and and it's you know looking at the aftermath of that and how people survive. Um, and I know mm-hmm. that you I know that you've previously urged the federal government to harden our electrical grid against an EMP attack. Can you explain a little bit what is hardening and have you seen any progress? Uh, regarding progress, no. Uh, it's been gridlocked for 10 years. Three bills, uh, newly titled Protect Our Grid, have gone through the House, and McClowski in Alaska has locked them up in committee. A new bill, I believe, just went up onto the floor last week. Hardening the grid, really, uh, what happens with an EMP, electromagnetic pulse? Somebody wants to take us out, detonate a nuclear weapon about 250 miles above the center of the United States, or an ideal scenario three, East Coast, West Coast, Central United States. It sets up an electrostatic pulse that goes through the atmosphere at the speed of light, building an intensity. Why? Because actually the Earth is a giant magnet, and this electromagnetic pulse is being pulled down towards the planet's surface. We have hundreds of millions of miles of wires crisscrossing our country now. Those wires pick up the pulse. It becomes an electrical overload and shorts the grid out. Uh, In other words, it's like you just bought a brand new television. You've plugged it in and a lightning bolt hits next to your house and it's gone. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hardening the grid involves better circuit breaking systems at closer intervals that can react very quickly to the initial pulse, which is known as an E1. Right now, most circuit breakers cannot do that. Second, there's something called, yet another acronym, GATAs, which are just computerized switches, highly, highly vulnerable. We need to upgrade our power system, better circuit breaking, GATAs, and then very crucial, stockpiling of crucial equipment. Uh, those huge transformers that occasionally you see being all along the highway with wide load signs on them, you have to order those about two years in advance. And it costs several million dollars, and usually it's China. 
America only manufactures 15% of its power grid and replacement parts. All the rest is now made overseas. Do those steps and a major EMP, it might do some damage, but most of the grid will survive. And if most of the grid survives, the, per- the, the country or whatever that did this to us, well, hasn't succeeded. Right now, we just have a nice big kick me sign hanging on our back. I'm not worried about China, Russia, because you got mutual assured destruction. But players like North Korea, mm-hmm. Iran, even ISIS could do it. North Korea has the capacity right now to do it, which I find very disturbing. Right. So I mentioned at the beginning of the interview that you wrote The Lost Regiment, a fantasy action-adventure series in the (laughs) 1980s and 90s. How did you transition from that genre to writing thriller novels? (laughs) I started out uh, writing young adult short stories uh, for Boy Blythe magazine. I was a regular contributor. Uh, My goal in life was to be a science fiction writer. And I started writing science fiction late 70s, early 80s. I had about seven or eight books published. And then The Lost Regiment came out. And that actually did rather well. It was a fun series. It's about a Civil War regiment, the 35th Maine fictional regiment, that gets caught up in the Bermuda Triangle when being transported to an amphibious operation in North Carolina. And they wind up on another world where they find that the indigenous population is not too friendly. And (laughs) across the books, that book and the ones that follow, it's how does this regiment build a technology that it can replicate 19th century weaponry to arm other humans on the planet so they can stand against the indigenous, uh, known as the two guards, which I kind of modeled as eight-foot Mongols. How did I do the transition? I was in grad school. And at the time, I was writing some of these. Then uh, met Newt Gingrich, formed a good friendship there. We agreed to start doing some novels together. And graduate school as well, I think, turned me more serious. And I did my dissertation. I did several traditional history books. And then in 04, Newt showed me the evidence regarding EMP and suggested I write a book to get the information out there. And from that, that's why we're talking today. And I'm not writing Lost Regiment volume number 25. <laughs> have you have you considered going back and writing any more Lost Regiment novels? Yeah, my agent keeps pushing me on it. Uh, <laughs> between you and me and nobody listening, I felt like I kind of wrote myself into a bit of a corner with book nine. <laughs> and you can only do so many sequels. Right. And at some point, you start repeating yourself. Um, you're obviously a science fiction fan. I mean, how many Dune books are out there? <laughs> Quite a few. Yeah, it's like, you know, Sam Warren, Brothers of Dune, number 20. It's just, yeah. The first, no- the first novel of Dune was incredible. And it kind of went downhill from there. Yeah. Um, not to insult uh, Herbert or his son, but no. But I did have a grand time writing the Lost Regiment books. So with 48 hours in your thriller novels, what is the writing process like for you? Do you outline the books extensively or do you write more organically? 
I kind of call it, it's like where the book gets started. It's like God slapped me up over the side of the head. I'm kicking around different ideas, nothing's gelling, and then suddenly, boom, two usually non-related things come together. It's like a nuclear fusion reaction. And almost the entire book comes to me at once. And then I just sit down and I binge write until I get a first draft done. Then sit back, take two or three weeks off, go back, do the edits, and then finally send it in. And are you, do you have uh, plans or ideas for your next novel beyond your new one, 48 Hours? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) We can answer. Uh, I've written 50 books. And I will confess, uh, you know, my local newspaper here did an article on me a while back, and the headline was Dr. Doomsday. Uh, I've now (laughs) written four books about the potential end of our country. I'm waiting for an idea to come along. I I jokingly tell people my next book will be called Happy Bunny Goes to Town. (laughs) I'd like to write a happy book for a change. (laughs) So given your success as a writer, what advice would you have for aspiring writers who may be listening? Right. Um, This might take off some lit professors, but I don't hold much enthusiasm for uh, writing workshops and master's degrees in creative writing and such. I mean, people come up to me, you know, I'm a college professor as well, so I've got kids asking me, gee, I want to write a a book doc, what do I do? I tell people, go out and read the classics. I mean, the really good, and I, I mentioned one, Dune, if that's the area you want to go into. And what you have to do is you have to read the book differently. You have to analyze it. At what page did the book hook me? Remember, it's just little black squiggles on a piece of paper, but it forms a picture in your head. At what point did you suddenly have, you couldn't put the book down. You have to turn to the next page. If you can figure out how the author did that, you're on your way to becoming a writer. And then absolutely Every day, write something, right? Write a journal, write a book, uh, but you have to keep writing and study those who you admire. And so what books have you read lately, fiction or nonfiction, that you would recommend or that that impressed you? (laughs) Well, uh, the technical books about uh, solar energy and such, I wouldn't recommend them. It's kind of a yawn. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, I had to do a lot of research on how that works. And with most books, well, I do a lot of research. Right. Uh, let's go back to Lost, let's go back to Lost Regiment. One of the things that made, I think made the series great for me was, and people liked it, <clears throat> I'm at Purdue University, where technology is a big thing at Purdue, and they had all the original Scientific Americans published all the way back to the early 1850s. I spent endless hours in the library reading Scientific Americans from 1860, 61, 62, and getting ideas for the type of technology I was going to write into the book. So I read that, you know, 
I don't read current science fiction and mm-hmm. I don't read current thrillers because I'm actually a little afraid of <clears throat> one either crossing into other people's territory or I've seen this happen before where people have unconsciously plagiarized something. Sure. I just came across an example last week and I was like, whoa, wait a minute. I think I just read this and I went back and checked around and sure enough, it was almost an entire page. Now, did the newer author do it deliberately? No. I think what happened is I know for myself taking notes when I used to actually have to take my pencil and paper. When I quoted something, I would write cap locked across the top quote source. Sometimes you don't do that, and you can maybe slip down a hole. And uh, I worry about that. So what do I read right now? I'm rereading the Horatio Hornblower series because I love it so much. And it's great writing. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with William Forston, author of the new thriller novel, 48 Hours. The book is in bookstores now. So go grab a copy or download the ebook from your favorite ebook store. And William, thanks for doing this interview. It's been a real pleasure talking with a fan of the 35th Maine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.